I would say that as a whole, I'm way better off for having gone through it. And I'm sure everybody has a horror story that's a mistake they'll never repeat. And hopefully it was a mistake that didn't cause them to go bankrupt and then they could learn from it and have a way better business because of it. Best ever listeners, before today's episode, I want to invite you to join us in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. It is the 2020 Best Ever Conference. And not only do I want to invite you to join us, I want to invite you to earn 15% for every ticket that you're responsible for selling should you join as an affiliate for the conference. Great way to earn money. And also, if you're planning on attending, great way to pay for your ticket, essentially. You get enough sales. So you can go to BEC20.com. And in the top left corner, it says earn 15% as an affiliate. You can click that, join the affiliate program, and you got all the resources that you need to share the good word about the Best Ever Conference in Keystone, Colorado. And we will be talking more about this on future episodes. But for now, go check out BEC20.com and that affiliate page. You can earn 15% as an affiliate, and we will see you in Keystone, Colorado. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And we are doing this live today from a Cincinnati meetup. If you have not attended, well, that's probably because you don't live in Cincinnati, but we have a lot of out-of-towners who also come and visit. You can go to bestevercincy.com. Come join us last Tuesday of every month. It costs $2.50, maybe $3, but you also get free pizza. So with us today, we are going to talk to Dan Gorman. First off, how are you doing, Dan? Good, thank you. Good to have you. And we're going to talk about the ways he has lost money on deals. He is an incredibly successful real estate investor. And best of listeners, you can hear our interview where I talked to Dan about some very successful projects. And maybe we'll touch on that briefly just to give some context. But we're not going to focus on those projects. We're going to talk about lessons learned from deals that didn't go the direction that he intended. So a little bit about Dan. He's a founder of United Property Group, been investing in real estate for 22 years, purchased approximately $50 million worth of property, currently owns 200 apartments, 6,000 square feet in office space in a few different buildings, and a couple restaurants, a Starbucks, a Grater's, which is a wonderful ice cream place in Cincinnati, a convenience store. Which one? It's called Churchill Market. It's Church- next to the Starbucks. Churchill Markets, and recently flipped 42,000 square foot shopping center after buying the note, which was in foreclosure, based in Cincinnati. So how about first, if you want to just touch on some successes you've had, let's set the stage for who we're talking to, and then we'll get into the bad stuff. So a couple projects that have worked out well. Well, before I got involved in real estate, I had my own business. I was a jewelry broker. So I really loved being an entrepreneur. I loved being a business, but I really was searching for something that had a little bit more predictable and consistent cash flow. So I started listening. I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard of Carlton Sheets, No Money Down. So I was listening to his tape sets constantly, and I ended up buying my first property, which was a 25-unit deal, No Money Down, in Coryville, and then picked up another 20 units at the same time. So I had 45 units at that time, and, and it was just I just realized that I was really struggling trying to run my business at the same time and do that 
because it wasn't producing enough income to uh, be able to afford to hire staff. And so I ended up, through a series of interesting events, acquiring a 168-unit apartment community with no money down. Uh, that made great cash flow, better than the jewelry business had ever made, and it's given best month ever. So I kind of let that business go and started concentrating on real estate full-time. It was kind of the heyday back then before the real estate market crashed. You can do a lot of really crazy, creative, interesting deals. So before long, I was up to three mobile home parks, a few apartment communities, up to about 700 units altogether. And then probably the last five to seven years, we've been kind of shedding some of those assets. All the mobile home parks are gone. Most of the apartments are gone because the prices are just crazy ridiculous that people are offering nowadays. So I've shifted into distressed office mostly because you can find a lot of office properties that are sitting half empty with the same person that's owned it for the last 30 or 40 years. So that's where I'm finding an opportunity now. So I have morphed into less apartments and more of that. I also started a company in Rwanda to build low-cost houses. And so we have a few employees over there right now and we're working with the government to try to build a concrete house very quickly that we can reproduce from tens to hundreds at a time. So, And how much did you make on the 168-unit deal when you sold it? Well, that is a pretty unique deal. That I bought that property, like I said, for no money down for $3 million. In fact, it came with $100,000 in the bank and a reserve fund. So it was kind of, in addition to no money down, it came with $100,000. And then uh, and then, uh, and then I just sold. So I bought that in 2001, and I, I sold that in the last year for $10.5 million. You netted about seven? Yes. Then about seven. Okay, so you've had some success. <laughs> okay, so, and more to that story, and we get into the details in the other interview I did. It's on the podcast. Maybe we'll put in the show notes what day it's airing, because I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, how the hell did you just do that deal with $100,000 in your pocket at closing? So we get into that. Let's talk about a 120-unit property that you spent a decade and a half on. Tell us about that deal. Once I acquired that property we were just talking about, it had a lot of equity in it right away, and so we were able to refinance that within a year, year and a half, and pull about a million dollars out. So I took that million dollars and I used it to buy a 120-unit apartment community, and we're going to be talking about mistakes. This is a super complicated deal that I just did not understand. There was a lot of people. We used taxes and bonds to finance it. We used low-income housing tax credits to finance it, both of which I knew nothing about. There were people that were saying, well, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. You are going to make a ton of money if you do a deal like this. And unfortunately, everybody that was counseling me and telling me what a great deal it was, they stood to make really, really large fees if the deal closed. So I got to the point where I was about a week away from closing. I probably had about $250,000 hard at that time, which means that this is a deposit you cannot get back if you don't close the deal. And I went to... My attorney and I said, this deal, I don't understand it. This is a stupid deal. I don't think it's going to make any money. And I just went out. And they said, okay, we're going to start the process. And then they all powered up and they said, well, you're going to get sued and you're blah, blah, blah. So I just ended up closing on it. And it was, I lost my butt on that property for years. With 120 units, it went from about 85% occupancy down to, because we were rehabbing it. And because it had to go from a market rate property to an affordable property with tax credits, we went down to about 25% occupancy. I was losing $20,000 a month. It was extremely painful. So I'd say that it was so expensive to close that deal, and there's so many fees involved moving forward. I found out that most of the people that close that deal are nonprofit agencies, or a lot of them that do deals like that because they're not as concerned about cash flow. They're in it because their purpose is affordable housing. So 
it didn't matter how high our occupancy was, I just didn't make any money yet. So at 15 years later, I eventually sold it just like six months ago. I sold it for the same price I paid for it. I was just so happy to be out of it. And on top of that, though, the problem now is that I still didn't understand the deal when I was selling it. I asked an auditor to give me a tax consequence letter, and I asked my CPA to give me a tax consequence letter. And even though I sold it for the same price I paid for it, and I thought I was fully informed with what the consequences would be, I still have a million and a half dollar gain that I wasn't aware of. I didn't find out about until three months after it closed. And so now I have to pay tax on this million and a half dollar gain. I'm trying to figure out a way out around that. I'm meeting with somebody tomorrow, I'm driving up to Columbus and seeing if there's a way that we can work on that. I have a few months left in the year. So this is just a very valuable lesson for me. So you learn a tremendous amount when you get crushed in a deal like that. Things that you'll never do again, things that you can help people out with if they're about ready to get crushed in a deal. But the things that don't get involved in a deal that you don't understand. That's a big thing right there. There's a lot of complicated financing mechanisms out there. There's a lot of complicated deals with land contracts and lease options and things like that. So when I would call up an attorney who's supposed to be an expert at that deal, then the attorney couldn't give me an answer. They would have to say, I'll have to get back with you on that. Now, if it's so complicated that the attorney can't even answer the question, then it's a sign. This is a sandbox that I shouldn't be playing in. So that's a big one is understanding exactly, like you need to really, really understand it. Anything you get involved with. And let's go back to the day where you said, I'd like to be out of this deal. I'll eat the $250,000. What exactly, I mean, you mentioned that people say, oh, hey, you back out, we'll take you to court, but what were they threatening exactly? Because I would think you should be able to back out and just hand over the 250. Well, along with a complicated deal came a complicated contract, and there's a clause in a lot of contracts called specific performance that basically says if you're trying to get out of a deal without a valid reason, so maybe your due diligence period has run out, and now you really can't pull out of a deal unless it's like something happens with your financing or something like that. Once you hit a certain deadline, you are stuck. A lot of times you just collapse a deal and maybe you pay legal fees and things like that for the person who's selling it to you, but if this person is a jerk, they can basically say, I've lost all my buyers because I held the property up for you for the last six months and we're gonna force you to close on it. Or at least we're gonna to try to. So it just can get really, really complicated and expensive with all the legal fees. What was it about that moment in time that you thought, you know what, I need to get out of this deal? Did something in particular take place? Well, the first thing was is that I didn't really understand it. My attorney didn't understand it that well, but there was somebody in his firm that really understood it. And this attorney was saying, this deal is not that good. This deal is risky, and I don't think that you are experienced enough to be doing a deal like this. This happens when I say this to young people now too. I said, yeah, but it's really, really this, or it's really, really that. I can make this work. There's this gob of money to be made or whatever. Maybe I'll lose it. I won't make as much as I thought I was going to, but I'll still make decent money. So when you've got an expert that's saying, don't do this, and then you blow past that, that's a red flag. Basically. I just got less and less comfortable with it the closer we got to closing. And what specifically about it? Was it taking the apartment community from market rate to affordable and you didn't have that underwritten with maybe turnover costs or what financially didn't work once you closed on the deal? Well, as we were getting closer and closer to the deal, we needed the support of the city of Middletown and the city leaders did not want the deal to happen. 
They did not want this apartment community going from a market rate apartment community to affordable housing. And along with that, the restrictions for the next 30 years that it stay affordable housing. And so I was not getting any love at all from my neighbors. In order to make the deal work, there was all these projections of what you could raise the rent to. For example, the two bedrooms were getting 650. It was underwritten at 750 after the rehab was done. It was two and a half million dollars in rehab. So I started getting less and less comfortable that we could actually raise the rents to these levels, which is what this attorney was saying. These underwriting assumptions are too aggressive. You don't know if you're going to be able to get those, and if you don't, you're going to lose your butt. And so you did. No, I didn't. No. So. Okay. So what I learned from that specific thing about increased rents is that I will never ever do a deal again if I am not happy with the rents to where they are. So I may have tons of optimism about raising the rents from 500 to 900 or whatever, but I know that I will be able to put that deal and not lose money at 500 because there's a track record at 500. I know that I'll be able to get that. I have no idea if I want to be able to get 900. I want to assume that I can, but I'm not going to promise anybody that. And so I just bought a property that was a vacant 16-unit building, and I own the apartment community next door, and I know we're going to rehab the heck out of this thing. We're going to put granite and stainless steel and everything, but I know it's going to be below the other apartments that I have next door away, but I'm still underwriting it to the same rent that I'm getting next door because I know I can get that. 15 years. Why 15 years? Well, again, with this type of acquisition where you have low-income tax credits and you have taxes and financing and other taxes and bond financing, I was a general partner. I only owned a hundredth of a percent. I had a hundred percent of the risk, but only a hundred percent of the ownership. So. There are so many risks and things that could go wrong that nobody wanted to touch it as far as I can't just say, hey, how would you like to buy a property that is losing $20,000 a month and you're on the hook for a $5 million note that might go into foreclosure? And in fact, it did go into foreclosure. What happened? Well, this had two components to the financing. It had construction loan financing and permanent financing. In order to get out of the construction phase and into the permanent phase, I had to finish the rehab in a certain time. Then I had to have 90% occupancy for 90 days in a row with a certain debt coverage ratio, and I just couldn't quite get there. I would get to like 89%, I'd get to 90%, and I would stay there for two months, but not three months, and I had to keep in the clock resetting over and over again. And then right as I was getting close, the collapse happened in 2008, and Fannie Mae was the permanent lender, and they basically said, we're not lending money anymore. If we're not in a deal, if we have any way to get out of a deal, we're getting out. And they sent a letter to everybody across the country, and they just said, we're out. So this was a default under the term of the note. If you lose your permanent lender, you're in default. I had never missed a payment. I was never late on a payment. I was making these $30,000 a month payments and taking huge chunks out of my own pocket, and I still got foreclosed on. So they brought in a receiver to run the property. So I ended up getting out of that, which was very painful and stressful for a year to get replacement financing and to get out of that. Because you had a loan with a local lender and you were making your payments on the construction loan. Just the permanent financing that you had lined up once you achieved certain metrics, that went away. So then the local lender that you were making regular payments to said, you don't have that lined up anymore, so we're calling it. Yeah, we were never supposed to be the permanent lender. We don't want this loan. We're getting stuck with it now. So here's your bill for five and a half million dollars. And you have 30 days to pay it. You got that bill, then what happened? And then I called my lawyer and I said, what am I supposed to do with this bill? Well, you got $7 million in the bank, right? Yeah, well, this happened 10, hey, years, yeah. 10 years before that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so basically, we had to start circling the wagons and saying, let's talk about bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is a really bad thing. Even though this is an entity and everybody thinks that, oh, you're so protected because it's an entity. 
but there's usually clauses in every other loan that if you declare personal bankruptcy or bankruptcy in this entity, it starts to trigger defaults in every other loan that you have. So it was a scary, dark time. I didn't end up having to do that because I found some replacement financing that got me out of the deal, but it was very stressful. How did you cope just emotionally with that? What are some things that you did just to stay with it and into the process as you possibly could? I don't know. It was just super stressful. That's all I'll say. When you worked for a long time and you have all this, this stuff you're pretty proud of and you've got pretty good equity built up and then this stupid deal you never should have been involved with to begin with and you're in it, you're not making any money, you're losing your butt and it's going to take down everything else. It's just very, very and then painful. Receivership. For anyone who's not familiar with what that is and what the process is, will you describe that? When your property goes into foreclosure, the bank seizes control of it and they put in somebody to run it. It's usually maybe an accountant or a lawyer or somebody like that. And this receiver then becomes the boss of the staff. If there's no staff, if it's a smaller property, they basically start making the decisions. And the only good thing was that I didn't have to make any more payments to the bank. So I got some relief there. But it was just such an unusual situation because I was doing a good job running the property. We were at 89% occupancy, not 90, but it was just really, really challenging location I was in. So normally I would have not be able to touch the property, but he just let me continue to run it. He kept all the same staff. I talked to them every day. He asked me questions and it was just kind of this friendly thing. And when I got out of it, we had shook hands. But normally the receiver, it's his job is to keep that thing frozen and not let it get any worse. He's not necessarily going to put a bunch of money into improving it or whatever. He's going to protect the value of the asset for the bank until that asset can be sold or the bank can be made as whole as possible. And what so, ha what happens when you get out of it? What takes place then? Well, normally you don't get out. Once you're down far enough to have a receiver put in, that means that that project has failed. The foreclosure process is going to happen and I would never be able to get that loan again, probably. Whenever you get a big commercial loan, one of the first questions I ask, it may even be a non-recourse loan, which means I don't have to guarantee it, but they always want to know if you've ever defaulted on a loan in the past. And so even though I got out of that, because it got foreclosed on, I have to explain it every single loan I get forever. So I have a little piece of paper that's ready to go, and I just submit it with my application to these commercial lenders. And it's actually considered a positive to most lenders now because the fact that I didn't throw the keys on the table when I was losing all that money, and I stuck with it, and it got foreclosed on, even though I had never missed a payment, that they respect the fact that I got out of it. I stuck with it even when it got foreclosed on. In fact, when I got out of it, which means I found replacement financing, and a new limited partner, everything, and I shook the guy's hand, and he gave me my keys back, theoretically, and I said, well, this has been a pain in the ass. How many people have ever gotten out of it? He says, you're the first one in 25 years. And it's been really stressful, though. <laughs> I got foreclosed on and I didn't really miss a payment, but at the same time, these guys were shedding everything, these banks. So they were foreclosing on everything so fast that the one good thing is that the replacement financing that I found for it was a million and a half dollars less than what I got foreclosed on, and they did not pursue me for my personal guarantee, which was a huge blessing. And so. should someone come across a situation similar to that where they're getting foreclosed on, what are some things that you would suggest they do emotionally or just in the process that were helpful for you? Well, I think you should pray. That's a good thing. That helped me a lot. And I think it's just very helpful to find an expert. You're already probably in a situation because you're losing a gob of money to begin with. But if you can get a recommendation for a, an attorney who's very well versed in this type of thing, there are a lot of the banks, they really don't want that property. 
there are things that you can do to short circuit that process. For example, I bought a shopping center note not too long ago, and this shopping center was getting foreclosed on. It had a Walgreens in it, and the Walgreens left. And so they went from getting $25,000 a month for the space to about $2,000 a month from a mattress store then. And so they stopped their payments, they got foreclosed on. The bank put the note up for sale. They didn't feel like the property had much value to it. So I bought the note, I became the person foreclosing on them instead of the bank. And I said, if you sign the deed over to me, then you can walk away free. And he, within like one day, I owned the shopping center and they were no longer getting foreclosed on. Kind of going back to what I said, they will have to disclose the fact that they were involved in that process, but the fact that they got out of it through me is a huge win for them. Going back to the apartment community, you said you found alternative financing. How many lenders did you reach out to about getting financing? It sounds like, was that the linchpin that you needed in order to get it out of receivership is just get another group in there to get financing? So I imagine so, you were so, hitting the street pretty hard. Yeah, I was working on it every day for a year, very much. So trying to avoid the bankruptcy thing and trying to get out of the foreclosure. And a good attorney and a good person who is just another tax credit investor who really understood it more, a lot better than I did, helped hook me up with a bank that was willing to make the loan. How did you get introduced to the tax credit investor that helped you out? I don't remember the exact series of different people who introduced us and stuff like that. So this guy had just done a bunch of different, he used to be a bond trader, so he really understood the taxes and bonds, and he understood the tax credits. So but he introduced me to a bank that he was on the board of, and so that helps. Wow. Okay. Anything else as it relates to that deal that you think we should talk about lessons learned from that experience? I think that I hit on all the points. The big one was the property qualified because it was in a, a certain area that wasn't the best area. And then the combination of trying to go in there, spend a bunch of money on improving things, and then at the same time thinking I could increase the rents by a couple hundred dollars a month in an area that was struggling to begin with. An area 15 years later, I never got to the rents I was supposed to get to. Underwrite to whatever you know for sure you're gonna get. That's what I'll say it again. And I know you're in the middle of it right now, but do you know how you're on the hook for a $1.5 million gain if it's the same price that you bought it for? Yes. So what was happening was that every year I was having a lot of profits from some of my other properties, but I was having tremendous losses on this property. And so because I was only a hundredth of a percent owner, my limited partner, which was Huntington Bank, because they bought all the tax credits, they were getting all of the losses. I was the one who was taking the money out of my pocket and paying it. So a few years into it, I said, I am getting crushed on this property. Can you push some of those losses my way because you can trade your losses back and forth on your K-1s. So they said, well, we understand. We want you to survive, so we're going to push a lot of losses your way. We have to have a certain amount for the tax credit, you know, that equals your depreciation, but you can have everything else. And so what was happening, and probably somewhere along the way, goes with the stuff I didn't understand. Somebody said, this is going to affect your capital account because you cannot take losses on something that you actually physically don't own. 100% up, does that make sense, or whatever. So I was accumulating all these losses that were offsetting all my other taxes that I would have paid. And it felt like it was a slight win for me just because I hated this project so much and I was getting killed on it. But at least I was getting the losses pushed my way. But what was happening secretly, which I didn't realize, was that this was all adding up in something called your capital account. So after I sold it and I got the opinions of everybody, and everybody said this has taken over the last 15 years, and now, 
you have to pay a gain on those because you would have paid the tax if you wouldn't have taken losses every single year. Does that make sense? So if I would have owned 100% of the property, it wouldn't have been a big deal, but I didn't really own much of it at all, and I was still taking a lot of the losses. So it's complicated. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine it was an accountant who figured that out at the end. Was that accountant not on your team during the process? Yeah, unfortunately it was the same accountant that I asked what the tax consequences are <laughs> Is that still your accountant? Uh, 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 she is. She's working hard to try to figure out a way out of it. So. Uh, okay. Thank you for sharing that. Very, uh, I'm sweaty right now. Just very, valuable. <laughs> very valuable. I'm talking about it. You do or don't? No. No? No, but there is. But you, but, but, you but, offered to say, talk. When we, so we had yeah. coffee three weeks ago, and he said, you know, it would be good to talk about ways I've lost money. Uh, okay, great. <laughs> so th thank you for this. I mean, I am sweating too, really seriously sweating. Are you just sweaty it just brings you back to the situation, and so I would not be sweating if I was <laughs> But I do think that it has affected positively every single deal I've done after that. The way I underwrite a property right now, very conservatively, and I've been able to share a piece of that story with so many different people, <clears throat> as we've been talking about another deal, or that have affected my deals positively since then. And so I would say that as a whole, I'm way better off for having gone through it. And I'm sure everybody has a horror story that it's a mistake they'll never repeat. And hopefully it was a mistake that didn't cause them to go bankrupt. And then they could learn from it and have a way better business because of it. So there's another bullet point I've got here in my notes, and then we'll wrap up. Didn't think he needed permits for a commercial space <clears throat> costing him money now. What's that about? So I'm one of these guys that tries to fly under the radar. I love value add. I love rehab. My dad was a builder. I love to rehab stuff. That's my passion in real estate. So a lot of times it's really obvious when you don't need permits. Sometimes it's really obvious when you do, and sometimes there's kind of this gray area in between. So I would say that I have a tendency to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. And so I do a lot of things. If they're on the borderline, I'll just push through and do them without getting permits, or I used to. So I am involved in a deal right now where I have an office building and I rented the entire second floor, it's about 6,000 square feet, to a tenant. And I met the building inspector there, I met the fire department there, I said this is what we're going to do with it. We're going to take all the walls out, it's going to be like this big innovation hub with glass garage doors and everything like that, it's really cool. Is this cool if we do this? And everybody gave their input and said, yeah, go for it. And so I just charged ahead with the rehab and I never really got a permit for it because, you know, I, everybody knew what I was doing. So after these folks had moved in and there was a bunch of news on it, the building inspector called me up and said, hey, I know we went through it, but I don't recall ever seeing a permit. And I was like, wow, you never said I needed one. You were right there. So now it's just really, really painful to go backwards because I do have to have a permit. And what has been the most painful thing with it is that what comes with a permit and proper plans is a determination of what your occupancy levels should be. So based on your HVAC and your fire exits and things like that. So this tenant has a need to have 50 to 100 people in there on a regular basis. And I just found out this week that my occupancy is 42. And then the only way to get around that is to add a fire alarm system in the whole building with strobes and buzzers. We could have either made the decision not to rent to this tenant or it would have been way cheaper to do it during the rehab when I had everybody there to begin with than try to work around their schedule. They have to cancel stuff now. It's embarrassing. And so every job now, I always call the building inspector if there's any rehab to it at all, unless it's super, super simple. 
and I'm going to be moving walls or whatever. I know it is a pain and it slows things down, especially if they say you have to get drawings. Man, does that slow things down. But it is way better to be on their good side than to get caught. And I'm not even going to say caught like you're trying to do things underhanded. It's always better just to get their opinion. Building inspectors really like it if you're proactive and you say, can I get your opinion? Can you stop by? I want to show you some things I'm going to be working on here. And then if they say you're going to need a permit, then just get a permit. The stuff can come back and bite you in a thousand different ways if you don't. What's the fire alarm system cost approximately? Well, this is a three-story building and the ballpark is about $25,000. So that is really, really not good news. Mm -hmm. So I could have asked the tenant to pay for that up front before I lease it to him. We could have shared that cost before we signed a lease, and now this is my responsibility. Well, we're going to open it up to questions. I'm sure we got some, and if you can repeat the question, that way we can get on. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that the large unit, you, you got into a project that you were unfamiliar with, so your advice would be to not do that. On the other side of the spectrum, you're supposed to stand all your successes on the other side of your comfort zone. So how do you reconcile those two things? Does that make sense? It does. Summarizing the question, I would say, if I say don't get involved in a project that you don't fully understand, then how do you expand your business and grow? So I'm not saying don't do things that are risky because that's how you grow, but I'm just saying really, really understand it well. So if there are components that you're signing your name on that have big financial consequences, if they don't go your way, you have to fully understand the deal that you're involved with, underwrite it properly, and fully understand all the risks and how it can go sideways on you. I think that I'm a pretty decent example of going from apartments to mobile home parks to shopping center to office or whatever. And each one of those is a risk that I don't know anything about before I go into it, but it's just been a lot more careful now. With the variety of your experience in owning rental property, do you have a preference for residential apartments or for commercial now? And yeah. why, if you do? Yeah, residential is the best for a lot of different reasons. I think that first of all, the more you merge into commercial, it is very expensive to get a tenant in a commercial space. So I'm releasing a 2,000 square foot space to a CPA. I met with him today. It's going to cost me $25,000 to prepare the space for him for a three-year lease. And what's the rent? The rent's going to be just under three grand a month. So now, as soon as he signs the lease, I've started thinking a little bit more long-term, meaning that when he signs that lease, the value of the property goes up. I spend $25,000, but the value of the property goes up $100,000 because of the cash flow and the net income increases. But the risk is so much more spread out with apartments. So if, if I could find a good deal in an apartment community, which I cannot anymore, but if I could find a good deal in an apartment community, 100-unit apartment community that maybe cost five, $6 million, uh, the same type of property in anything else, commercial, I would definitely take the apartment community. Your risk is so spread out to 100 different units instead of three different tenants or one tenant or whatever, and it's just a lot more predictable what can go wrong. The problems that you have with residential are fairly minor compared to some of the things that can happen with commercial where you have a boiler or an elevator, that's a perfect example, go down. I had an elevator get stuck and people got trapped in it. So that was not good. And then the fire department had to come and get them out. And then the elevator company came and they fixed it. And then three days later, somebody else got trapped in it. And then they called 911 again because they're stuck and they don't want to be stuck. So then the fire department comes and lets them out and says, all right, if this happens one more time, we're going to shut your building down. And it happened again four days later. So there's things that you just don't know anything about. 
and you're thinking you're doing everything you can by hiring a reputable elevator company and still the stuff happens and it just costs so much money. Every time that elevator company comes out and tries to fix something, it's thousands of dollars. Whereas we go back to residential, it's just much simpler. Did they shut the building down? They shut the elevator down. They did not shut the whole building down, but I did have some disabled people that could not get to their offices for two or three days until the elevator company came again and got working. I have a follow-up. Sure. I'm a residential guy, apartments, and I know people who rent commercial spaces who like to talk about how magical triple net leases are. It sounds like you would still advise, no, if you get your money into apartment buildings, that's better. Even though triple net lease, I'm not paying any of my own expenses. I don't have to deal with so many things. And if you could give a brief description of a triple net lease, that'd be really helpful. But doesn't the opportunity in the commercial space to get things like a triple net lease make that appealing? Okay, so a triple net lease is basically, as a landlord, you have zero responsibilities. Your tenant pays the insurance, they pay for all the maintenance, they pay the taxes. So all you do is get a check every month and then you pay your mortgage and you don't do anything else. So that's actually what I did with the big property that I just sold is I invested in $12 generals. Dollar General is open up stores up like crazy. So you're not going to get any type of a bargain on a triple net lease. You're going to pay the highest price of any type of real estate there is because no responsibility is very attractive to a lot of people who have been in real estate their whole career and now they want something easy. So there's all kinds of money pouring into triple net all the time. So the returns are much less. The other disadvantage is that I have a ton of money tied up into these properties. So I did a tax defer exchange where I don't have to pay the taxes. They'll get me later, right? But because I get a certain return on that, and I will never, ever be able to increase the value of that property, in my opinion. Because there might be an inflation clause built into the lease, so 15 years from now, if Dollar General decides that they want to be in that place, they're going to say, well, I know our lease says the rents are supposed to go up 4% or 8%, but if you want us to stick around, you're going to have to keep it the same. It happens 100% of the time. So basically, you're kind of locked in. There's no upside at all. But what it does do for people, if that's their strategy, is they want to have that, is it kind of sets some money aside and you don't have to worry about it anymore for a while. There is still risk. I have these Dollar Generals. I have 12 of them. They're all in Michigan and really rural areas. They're so nice. We don't do anything. But in the back of my mind, I'm always worried that on year 15, how many of them are they not going to renew the lease on? And if I, Dollar General is not the tenant, how much rent am I going to get if I have to rent it out to some local company? And how much does the value decrease if I do that? So there's still risk involved in it. It's really easy right now. So my strategy with that would be Dollar General is great. They've been around since the 50s. But instead of having all the leases expire at the same time, I may sell three or four of them in the next year or two, replace those with brand new ones. And so the leases are always kind of renewing a different schedule and stuff instead of all the same year. Brought back some less than desirable memories. So I've got to look through something on a smaller scale at that same time frame, it was an incredible grind. I mean, you had to go every day. If you're looking for somebody to replace a loan, you had to talk to bankers who didn't want to talk to you. And it was just a continual battle. Um, but you get through it. Days and weeks kind of go along. It's a fight. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that getting on the other side is I'm investing in uh, single-family homes now. And the clarity is just awesome. Is that kind of what you experienced? Is that I know what a bad deal looks like. I don't want to be involved in a bad deal, and I understand margins, and I understand my risk tolerance. Is that kind of what you 
The question was, do I look at deals differently now with more clarity than having gone through that terrible time? So I think it's totally different. First of all, I don't get sucked in by the sizzle of some of these sales presentations, I guess the marketing brochures and things like that, of, of how amazing this property is and how much upside there is. And everything's value add if you look at it. So I'm just much more conservative when I look at things right now. And I'm so much faster at just ignoring a deal instead of getting sucked in and wasting a bunch of time on it. If it even smells like over-promising some return or something like that, I don't even want to get involved with it. We've got time for one more question. Yes, back. I wanted to ask about Airbnb. Do you do any real estate with Airbnb? Do you have any real estate properties that you run out? Well, we only have one Airbnb, so I don't know a lot about it. But I'll tell you about my experience. I have a three-unit building in Bellevue, Kentucky that my daughter lives in. And we have this nice, awesome, consistent income from one of the units in there. And then the lady leaves, and my daughter wanted to do an Airbnb, which I thought was not the best idea myself, just because we have... $600 a month coming in from this apartment and she wants to do the Airbnb. But she's killing it. She's doing great. It has been really, really challenging to deal with Bellevue, Kentucky. They keep changing their regulations. So she went and asked them if she could do an Airbnb in the property. And they said yes. So we fixed up the unit and got it all ready. And then I said, okay, just go fill out the paperwork now so we can make it official. And they said, well, you can't do that. We just instituted some new regulations two weeks ago. Everybody's doing their best to regulate these things because Bellevue for example, had a bunch of homes all over the place. And it's pretty close to downtown Cincinnati, so people rent these homes for Bengals games and Reds games and Riverfest. And if you have a three-bedroom home, you can fit like 12 people in this thing. And so they party and they take up all the parking and cause all kinds of problems. So Bellevue, and from what I hear, other towns are trying to kind of push through these regulations and figure this all out so they don't have situations like that. So they instituted a program where you had to be an owner of the property that you're renting out, and you have to live in it at least six months a year. So. It was my daughter, but she wasn't an owner. So then, so far into the dang thing that we had to form an LLC just for this, and she became a hundredth of a percent owner, and so we were able to apply for it. And then they sent us back something else that said that, even though they said that if we did that, it would qualify, they sent us something back, and they said, multi-unit dwellings don't qualify. You have to have single-family homes. I'm like, this is not what the regulation said just two weeks ago. So we're still fighting it. I've been very upfront with the uh, city manager there. And I'm like, listen, we're doing everything you're telling us to do. So we're just going to be renting this thing out now because I know there's tons of people that are trying to do it on the down low. And you just have to help us qualify. I think you'd rather have the owner living right next door than somebody from out of state doing it. So he's fine with that. We're okay. So now she only gets 60 or 70 bucks a night for it, a $40 cleaning fee, and she is probably 28 out of 30 nights a month. She's booked. But it is a heck of a lot of work. She has to find people. Whenever she wants to go out of town, she's got to try to find people that can take care of any issues with her guests. She has to find somebody to clean it. And out of the 28 days that it's rented, it's probably turned at least 12 times to 15 times. And so that's a lot of work for somebody to go in there and turn it over. And if you like to do things like travel or something like that, you have to have some other 
So her mom goes in and cleans for I don't know who's going to take the distress calls if there's a problem. So people are finicky. They say, this is too hot, it's too cold. You're out of this or whatever. My towels looks dirty, stuff like that. And so to me, it's easier to have an apartment than that. But I have a buddy in Pittsburgh that has started to convert a lot of his multifamily units into Airbnbs because his township is fine with it. And he doesn't travel much. He stays around and his kids are involved in his business. So they all kind of share. So for him, it's been, he's gone from $1,800 a month for this one building to almost 5000 a month because of Airbnb. But it's a lot more work. Hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Feeling lost on your roadmap to wealth? Tune in to the newly launched REI Foundation podcast where hosts Jason and Peely give you all the steps and missteps towards achieving your investing dreams. Featuring interviews from top industry professionals, Make sure you listen and subscribe to REI Foundation Podcast at thereifoundation.libson.com. Best ever listeners, go to bec20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, bec20.com.